I hope that as you came in this morning, perhaps the auditorium, you noticed the new sign, banner, art piece, maybe, that is behind me. Uh, Steve Henson made that, and it is in particular to focus our attention on our uh, Leviticus study over the next several months. And he has been working on this for a long time, and I very much appreciate uh, the effort that he's put forth into it. You should, if you'd like to, you should come closer and look at the work that he did. It's quite impressive. Uh, Every weekday morning, my family participates in the same scramble that many of you do. Uh, uh, Millions of other families uh, families participate in every day. uh, day. It's the, the challenge, the scramble of getting the kids ready for another day of school. Uh, you might uh, drive them, you might uh, walk with them, they might catch the bus, or school might be at your kitchen table. Um, I am I'm always surprised at how many things can happen during what's supposed to be a predictable series of events. There's a certain list of things that happen to have to happen before they leave, and I'm amazed at how many other things can interfere and erupt during that period of time. Uh, When I'm home uh, and I see the girls uh, get on the bus, I always say the same thing to them as they walk down the sidewalk to get on the bus. I say, have a good day. Come home smarter, not stupider. Um, (laughs) I haven't received any eye rolls for that comment yet. It's coming. They're coming. I've said it hundreds of times. They don't plan to stop. Come home smarter, not stupider. Um, I thought about my greeting when I heard an article that, about an article that was recently published in The Atlantic. The article was called, Why Parents Should Let Their Children Fail. Um, Albert Moeller talked about it on his podcast this week. This is how this article starts. Again, it's called, Why Parents Should Let Their Children Fail. It started with a story of a, a young teacher, a new teacher, who called home to one of her students, a 13-year-old girl, and to speak to her mother. And she told her mother that she had um, caught her daughter plagiarizing on a recent essay, and she would be receiving a failing grade for this. Sure, teachers have to make these calls occasionally. Well, she broke the news, and, and the mother said, in horror, just horror, said, but she didn't do anything wrong. And the teacher said, well, I I know she did. I looked on the website that she lifted the paragraphs from. I've seen it online. It's obviously she she plagiarized. And the mother said, but she didn't do anything wrong. I did. I'm the one who wrote the paper. Hmm. That is a trend that teachers and others who work with children are seeing more and more and more. Parents are moving from the role of hover helicopters to actually participating in their children's lives. Now, the rationale for this uh, is that they're trying to ensure that their children... are saved from failure. They're trying to ensure that their children succeed, to keep them from disappointment, to keep them from discouragement, to help them develop, here we all can say it together, healthy self-esteem. Now, the problem with that is that in order to learn, you have to fail. That's a necessary part of the learning process. That's why perfectionists never like to try anything new. If you're a perfectionist, you don't like to try new things because in order to learn something new, you have to fail at it. And if you're going to fail, why bother? Let's just keep doing the things I can do perfectly already. 
Uh, what's even more insidious actually about this than, than just that parents want to save their children from failure, uh, parents, it appears, uh, do their children's homework and battle their children's teacher for higher grades, not just for their children's sake, but for their own self-esteem. I feel better about myself if my kid is uh, succeeding. They'll apparently do anything for the my child is an honor student bumper sticker. But the goal of education, the goal of maturation itself, is not feeling good about yourself, is it? It, The goal is learning and growing. And as I said, part of growth involves failure. You don't learn to walk unless you fall down. Uh, Protecting a a student from failure does does not foster a healthy school system. What's even worse, I think, than a parent who loses focus on on school and what it's for is congregations who lose focus on what they're supposed to be doing. It's very easy to do. Uh, Churches who forget what they're for, what they're really after. Our mission is to call people to follow Jesus Christ. But there's increasing confusion about what that means. Uh, both inside and outside the church. You should ask somebody, ask one of your friends who doesn't necessarily share your commitment to the gospel. Ask them, what do you think that Christianity is for? What's it supposed to do to people? What's it really about? You'll get some surprising answers, a variety of them. Some people will say, well, Christianity is supposed to give people meaning. Some people are looking for meaning in life, and religion, Christianity among them, gives people meaning or purpose. Or maybe it's good because it establishes morality. We want people to be moral, and Christianity is good for raising up moral people. Some will cynically say that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. It's supposed to make you good, and, and some people who have a hard time coping with life need a source of comfort. So to talk about a God who loves them is comforting. Uh, even more cynical will say, people will say uh, that Christianity is a power play by insecure men who are trying to control other people. Uh, today I want to answer this question. I want to find help in answering this question. Where does Christianity land? What's it for? Uh, from the Old Testament system of worship that God established for his people, uh, Israel, specifically in the book of Leviticus. We are working our way slowly through this book, and today we're going to come to chapter 3. So if you want to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 3, that would be excellent. Leviticus is easy to find. It's the third book in the Bible. So just uh, flip past the table of contents and then Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. They're all big books and you shouldn't um, struggle too much to find chapter 3. In significant ways, reading the book of Leviticus is like entering a, a foreign culture. It, there are things that are different and strange and unfamiliar in this. Uh, this system of worship that God established about 1,500 years before Jesus Christ was born is preparatory. It is preparatory for Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was in high school, I used to play my baritone in church on Sundays. And before the service, uh, I would warm up. And how do musicians warm up? By playing scales. It's useful. It trains your ear to hear uh, how notes are to, to work together. It, it, uh, in the case of the baritone, it, it warms up your lips and your fingers and makes them a little more nimble playing your scales. Scales are not music. They're not music. They're preparatory. They lead to it. There are in some ways you could say that Jesus Christ is the uh, symphony of the Bible. 
He is the grand music of the scriptures. He's the ultimate song that God sings in his book. Uh, Leviticus is the scales that leads to the symphony. Uh, as, we, as we read it here, Leviticus, we're, we're listening backwards to the scales to get our ears tuned so that when the grand song of the Bible, Jesus Christ, makes his uh, appearance, we say with greater delight, wow. That's what Leviticus is supposed to do. Now, in chapter 3, we have the third here in a series of sacrifices. There's burnt offerings, grain offerings, and then peace offerings. Or your Bible, your translation might say, mine does, <laughs> fellowship offerings. Uh, that's the third in the, source of, uh, in the series of five. Uh, in, in the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to talk about sin offerings and guilt offerings. This is the third in what is called the soothing aroma offerings. Burn offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings are soothing aromas, the text says, to the Lord. And this is the culmination of worship, this peace offering, this fellowship offering. Many people, when they would come to worship, you would bring in a series, a series of offerings, maybe a sin offering first, that was very common, then a burnt offering, then a grain offering, and then finally this peace offering. And, and this is a celebratory offering. It celebrates peace or it celebrates fellowship with God. And herein is how I want to describe how I want to describe where Christianity leads, how it culminates. The message we proclaim, the gospel that we proclaim, invites us to joy at experiencing peace with God. It's where we're going. It's the end of Christianity. It is a call to people to find peace with God and having found peace with God to rejoice in it. Uh, Christianity is not intended to make people moral. That's not the goal. It might help, but it's not the goal. It's not um, to help people cope. It's not about power. It's about joy over peace with God. And, and around that topic, and based on this chapter of Scripture, what I want to do is I want to ask and answer two questions this morning as we work our way through it. First, how do we obtain peace with God? How do we obtain, <coughs> excuse me, how do we obtain peace with God? And secondly, I want to ask the question, how do we celebrate this peace with God? Now let's think about this. How do we obtain peace with God? If you're well-versed in the Bible, and many, many, many of you are, this, this is, sounds like a very simple question. You know the answer backwards and forwards. Uh, you probably don't need to be around, in fact, a church for a while uh, before hearing about this. But uh, wrapped up in that question, how do we obtain peace with God, are a couple of assumptions that I don't think are always shared with those outside of the world in which we often travel. Uh, I want to I think about that for a little bit. I want to think about this perspective of peace with God from someone outside of the faith. What, how would they approach it? So, some people might be surprised that, they, that you need to talk about it, that it's a real issue. Peace with God? Doesn't God have peace with everyone? Isn't God loving? Is God personal enough that I would need to think about having peace with him? Does it really matter? Is this a real issue, peace with God? At the heart of this question, I think, are two assumptions that we that are laden and give weight to that question. Here, here they are. The first assumption is that pursuing peace with God is worth it. Pursuing peace with God is worth it. I, I, I don't know who the mayor of Boise, Idaho is. 
Mr. Potato Head? I don't know. I, um, and I, I really, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm totally indifferent to the mayor of the Boise, of Boise Idaho. I, I don't care who he is, she is. I'm, I don't care. I don't care if it's a he or she. I don't, I don't care. Um, I have no thought to my relationship with the mayor of the Bo- uh, Boise, Idaho. Uh, similarly, I'm completely indifferent to the status of my relationship with the Purina Dog Food Company. I have no relationship with the Purina Dog Food Company, and it doesn't matter to me. But this question, how do I obtain peace with God, assumes that it matters whether or not you have peace with God, that it is an important issue. God is not like the mayor of Boise, Idaho, nor is he like the Purina Dog Food Company. It matters if you have peace with him. And the second assumption here is that peace with God is something that must be pursued. It's something that it's not automatic. You have to obtain it. In other words, uh, there is a great and powerful God who is and who matters. And your knowledge of him, your devotion to him is the most important thing about you. It is more important than your age, your nationality, your race, your sexual orientation, your income, your past, your family background, your education. Whether or not you know this God who exists is the most important thing about you. Why? Because God is the most important person in the universe. And you're not naturally his friend. You're not naturally his child. You're not naturally his intimate. Now, announcing these truths is is not something that's new to Christianity. On on Wednesday mornings, a group of men from the church, we get together and we talk a little bit about some of the things that Jonathan Edwards has said and, and written. And we talk occasionally about his famous sermon, you know, his most famous sermon. Some of you had to read it in uh, junior high, maybe. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a rocketing sermon, and the point of the sermon was it was an announcement from Jonathan Edwards. There is a great God who is the most important person in the universe, and it matters whether or not you have peace with him. It's a question of eternal import. Now, the Bible is interested in building that knowledge in people. Let let me show you how how the Bible uh, does it, if I can, through this worship system that's in Genesis, uh, Leviticus chapter 3. These, uh, this, this chapter includes some sacrifices, some instructions for making a sacrifice. And if you've been around here for a couple weeks, this probably looks quite familiar to you. You can break it easily into three parts. Um, verses 1 through 5 are about uh, making a sacrifice uh, from the herd, a bull or a cow. Verses 6 through 11 are instructions for offering a sacrifice if your fellowship offering is a sheep. It's from the flock. And then verses 12 through 16 give some repetitive dis- instructions for what you're supposed to do if your offering is from is a goat. You offer one of those three you pick, and here's what you're supposed to do with it. Now, they're overlapping instructions. We saw that before with burnt offerings, didn't we? Uh, So let's look at the first paragraph here and see what we're supposed to do. Now, the text tells us that the offering can be a male or a female, which is different than burnt offerings. Verse 1, if someone's offering is a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. And very similar to the burnt offering, what you're supposed to do is you bring the animal in to the courtyard uh, around the tabernacle. You lay your hand on the uh, head of the animal or you lean on it. You slaughter the animal. The blood is collected by the priests and the blood, again, is splashed on the sides of, of the altar. 
You, you can see that verse two. He is to lay his hand or lean on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. Now, if this were a burnt offering, it would be skinned and cut up and placed on the altar and it would be consumed. That's not what happens here. We see our first significant difference. Um, Only part of it goes on the altar. Verse 3. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them. Both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. So here are the parts that go on the altar. Verse 5 tells us um, that this is a uh, preparatory, this follows the burnt offering, you can tell. It says, then Aaron's sons are to burn it, those parts, on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is on the burning wood as an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, uh, there, there are, what this passage does not tell us is why someone would offer a fellowship offering. What's the reason? The burnt offering seems to focus our attention on atonement, and uh, uh, the grain offering is a, a gratitude and dedication to God for his provision. What's this supposed to do? Well, we can actually find out in chapter 7. So flip over with me quickly to chapter 7, and we'll see here there are three reasons why you would bring fellowship offerings. Verse 11 says, these are the regulations for the fellowship offering a person may present to the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 12. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, uh, and there's some instructions for that. So gratitude, it's just a special thank offering to the Lord. That's the first reason. Now, second, look at verse 16. If, however, his offering is the result of a vow, here's the second reason, to fulfill a vow. Sometimes the Bible, might, you might call it a votive offering. They're not talking about those little candles that you decorate around your house that smell like pumpkin pie or whatever. It's, it's a fulfilling a vow, that sort of offering. Or a free will offering. Just, just um, a glad act of worship. That's what, what peace offerings were for to express thanks to God, to fulfill a vow. Actually, the Apostle Paul did that in the book of Acts. He offered a, a thank offering to fulfill a vow or a free will offering, just um, a, a gratitude to God. And, and verse 15 of chapter 7 tells us what you're supposed to do with the meat. Again, part of it goes on the altar. And then verse 15, the meat of his fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. He must leave none of it till morning. This offering, this culminating offering, is meant to express joy in God's presence, and and it's a feast. It's a sign of communion between the worshiper and God. You bring your offering, part of it goes in the altar, part of it goes to the priest, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, and then you eat part of it. And it's joyful, glad fellowship with God. We have peace with God, and we eat this feast together. Often this was the only time that, some, that many people in Israel would eat meat. It was in God's presence as an expression of thanksgiving and praise to him. And often what happened is the, there were time limits on how the meat had to be eaten. We saw that in verse 15. So uh, what would usually happen is that the, wealthy, the wealthier people would come. They would be the ones who would have the resources to offer uh, peace offerings. And they would come and they'd offer a peace offering. And then the meat, there'd be so much meat that they couldn't possibly eat it. So they'd share it with their neighbors and with their friends and with the poor and needy. 
This is a, a celebration. Now, understanding this, I think, should open up some of the other parts of the Bible. Um, Remember that, that I suggested to you when you leaned on your bull, you would often quote something and say something. And maybe you would, would quote Psalm 56. Maybe you'd sing Psalm 56. There's a verse written on your note sheet if you want to look at it. It's uh, uh, from Psalm 56. It's uh, verse, verses 12 and 13. Look what it says. I am under vows to you. Here's vows, right? I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Earlier in Psalm 56, he'd been describing how his life was so difficult, and it seems like when he was in the middle of trouble, he said to God, God, if you deliver me, I will offer a thank offering. I am vowing that I will bring a thank offering to you when you deliver me. And so he comes with this thank offering, and, and he, 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 you can hear him. He sings Psalm 56. Oh, it leans on the animal. I'm fulfilling my vow. I'm offering this thank offering because you, God, have been so kind to me. Think about that. When you read the book of Psalms, think about when they offered or when they would sing these songs. And, and frequently they mention bringing offerings, thank offerings. And they would sing it probably together, maybe as a family, as they lean on their animal uh, before they slaughter it. Or maybe it opens up for us Hebrews 13. Look at what Hebrews 13 um, says, this verse here. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now, he, he's enjoining worship, the author of Hebrews is, but not with bulls and goats. We don't bring bulls and goats to worship. We come through Jesus. And the author uses sacrificial language here, not just to describe the fact that it costs you something, that you had to pay a price in order to get here this morning. He is he's using the sacrificial language because you're plugging into the same thought here of the Old Testament. I am thanking God and acknowledging his blessing and his kindness, and I'm doing it through Jesus. In the, old, in the Old Covenant, we did it through an animal. Here I'm doing it through Jesus. Now, remember how he mentioned generosity? Look how Hebrews 13, verse 16 moves right along. Offer the sacrifice of praise, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The author of the book of Hebrews, I think, was thinking about Leviticus 3 when he wrote this verse. This is what God's people have always done. Acknowledge God's goodness and share with others. Under the Old Covenant, you did it with a, a cow that you fed to people. In the New Testament, you do it through Jesus and with your generosity. Now, uh, this is a good, it's a celebratory worship in Leviticus 3. But again, it, it, it's, it's bloody. It's bloody again. Why, why again, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, there's this blood, these bloody demands. God is determined to teach his people that you cannot come to him, you cannot know him, you cannot worship him, you cannot honor him without blood. It is a requirement to come into his presence. You can't come on your own. You can't come by yourself. For a sinful person to enter the presence of a holy God, to be at peace with him, there is a penalty that must be paid, and that penalty is death. It's the product of God's goodness. Um, I don't know if you heard, but um, there's a little game going on this afternoon. It's a tiny little 
football game that's happening. And uh, while you're watching, if, if you do, um, you'll see during uh, slow moments in the action, maybe they'll, they'll, the camera will pan on some of those box seats down in the stadium. And, and the reason they'll do it is they'll show you somebody rich and famous that you should care about is sitting in the box seats. How do you get in those box seats? Now, don't say escalators. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Um, how, how, do you, how do you get there? Oh. Money, right? You have a lot of money. Or know someone who has a lot of money. That's how you get into those box seats at the Super Bowl to what, I don't know if I can say that trademark. Uh, that's how you get into the box seats to see the big game that is going on on the field. You, you pay your way in. Well, with God here, the way in is not through financial means, it's, it's through goodness. Because God is good, because God is committed to good, because God is committed to restoring goodness in this world that we broke, He demands that those who come into His presence must be good. Now, be, be careful on how, how you think about this. It's easy when we think about the box seats of the Super Bowl to enter into snob or anti-snob mode. All those rich people, those rich, our culture kind of encourages us to think that those people, they probably got that way from cheating somebody. There's probably something wrong with them. They just love money. That's why they're there. I don't have any money. I just wish I did. If I I had as much money, I wouldn't love it as much as they do because that's why they're there, because they love money. It's easy easy to fall into that trap. Don't, Don't take that notion into the temple here. Oh, that's just God. He's so good. and He's better than all of us. You know, if I was that good, I wouldn't be so demanding, but that's how God is. No, don't do that. God is, is good, and his goodness is beautiful. It's glorious. It's, it's soul-satisfying. Uh, to be in his presence, for him to move into the Israelites, like into their tribe, into their village like, like he did, it was, it was a blessing. It was, it was God's kindness. It was God's um, grace and mercy. He's so good. And to, to come before him, huh, we can't by ourselves. I'm not, I'm not good enough to be in God's presence. I'm not at peace with God who made this world because I am the source of unpeace. I introduce dispeace into this world. And therefore, I am unworthy to come by myself. There has to be blood. I deserve to die in God's good presence. If God is, is really is that good, in order to express his goodness and to, to restore goodness and to have goodness on display, he's got to destroy ungood, non-good people like me. So instead of me, in the Old Testament here, this lamb, this ram, this goat dies in my place. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we discover, right, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate price that's paid. He was absolutely perfectly good. If you want to think about how attractive and wonderful it is to be in God's good presence, just think about Jesus when he walked. There was no snobbery in him because of his goodness, was there? He was just, he was good. In fact, his most uh, violent enemies were people who were snobs over goodness. He's so good. He 
God in the flesh, perfect goodness. He, he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He, he bore the cost for my offense on the cross when he died. And, and we come through him and we have peace with God. Now, how is this peace to be celebrated? If it's obtained through Jesus Christ, how is this peace to be celebrated? This is a passage that tells us um, that they must celebrate, but it gives us a flavor of that celebration. And there's two ways I think this passage tells us we must celebrate this peace with God. First, we celebrate it by surrender. We celebrate it by surrender. Now, notice again here the parts of the sacrificed animal that were to be consumed on the altar. Verse 3 says, All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the face uh, on them near the loins and the covering of the liver. Now, why, why this fat? Why this? Well, it's, it's the choice part of the animal. It's the best parts of the meat. Fat is a sign of the overflow if you have a fat cow, it is a contented cow. It is, it is um, satisfied. It's getting more than enough food. In fact, it's storing some of its food in reserves. That's why there's, there's fat there. It's a well-fed, well-cared-for, abundant animal. Some scholars wonder if the kidneys here are not representative uh, symbols of the emotions of, your, of the worshiper. In our culture, where are our emotions located in our body? Your heart. I love you with all my heart. Well, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew culture, it was the kidneys. I love you with all my kidneys. Um, which has a different sound to it, doesn't it? It just doesn't sound quite as right. Um, and here, you put the kidneys on the altar. It's the public declaration that God is worthy of your highest affections, your deepest joys, your most satisfying delights. And here, uh, again, we see pursuing God, peace with God is worth it because he is that good. He is that worthy of our highest joy and our greatest satisfaction. And I think we here see what's, what's the most rational. This surrender part is the most rational and the most challenging aspect of walking in step with God. It, it's rational because if God has made it possible for you to have peace with him uh, and, and you have peace with him, it only makes sense to surrender the rest of your life to him. If God positively and helpfully answers the most pressing issue, the issue of your peace with him, if God can provide Jesus Christ to meet your greatest need, then doesn't it make sense to give him everything else? Some of you, it's almost tax season, right? You have an accountant, maybe. Um, maybe the first year you go to a new accountant, you're nervous, right, a little bit, and you watch what he does very carefully. Uh, and, and if she does your, your taxes right, you get a refund, huh, you go back next year, right? And this year, maybe, the second year, you're a little less, a little less cautious, you watch over a little bit less. Third year, um, a little bit less. Fourth year, you don't even, you don't even talk to, you just sign, tell me where to sign, right? They, they have earned their trust by their management of your taxes so far, so you just, you trust them. God here, he, he, provides through Jesus Christ. Every, he meets our greatest need. You're a fool if you don't surrender more of your life to him. If you don't give more of your life to him. It's, it's rational, but it's really hard, isn't it? 
Some of you are thinking in your mind as, as you think about this concept of, of surrendering. If he, if he meets my greatest need, I should give him everything else. Some of you are thinking about your, huh, the, the issues of, of the battle for purity in your life. If God provides Jesus Christ for us, it meets the greatest need that we have. Don't you think he knows his, his counsel for us on drawing lines about what you watch, what you do with your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Don't you think he knows what's best? Doesn't it make sense that, that he would tell you what he does, not because he's a celestial killjoy, not because he's trying to ruin your life, not because he's trying to make you a pariah among your friends? Wouldn't, wouldn't he tell you that because he's, he's, he's good? He knows what he's talking about? He has your best interest at heart. He's trying, this is an expression of his generosity that he gives us guidance and wisdom in this. Surrender. Alan Ross said, "No No one can claim to be at peace with God or enjoy the benefits of that peace while refusing to surrender him heart and soul. God has done everything right in providing Jesus Christ for us. Why would I not rationally give him everything? <coughs> it's rational, but it's challenging. Oh. The challenging aspect of this is, is uh, that this is a view of God that's not shared by many. God is a celestial killjoy for, pe- for most people. The Bible declares that God is worthy of your highest affections and allegiance. He is enough for you. He's enough for your confidence and trust and joy. Um, I grew up in a church that's a little bit smaller than this one. And for a small congregation, we had a number of adults in our church who had uh, developmental disabilities, significant mental disabilities. Our pastor and our organist both had adult children living with them and um, who were disabled. One of the other young men who was uh, in this condition from our church, his name was Brian. Brian was a great guy. <laughs> uh, it was always fun to talk to Brian. Brian would say, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? And, and you you say, I'm doing fine, I'm doing good. And Brian, without hesitation, without embarrassment, would immediately say, well, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. When I was in seminary, one of my uh, favorite teachers had a son with Down syndrome. And they were sitting around the breakfast table one day, and my professor had hurt his back the day before doing some exercise or household project, and, and everybody knew about it. And he came down to the table, and he sat down, and his son said to him, well, how are you doing today, Dad? And he, his dad said, well, my back's a little bit better. And his son said, well, praise a little bit of the Lord. Uh, Brian's, uh, Brian's spontaneous praise always struck me a little bit. It's a little, a little jarring. If you'd pressed me and said, okay, uh, Joel, why, you, why did you say to Brian that you're feeling good today? I, I probably, I might have been able to give you various reasons. Um, I got a good night's sleep. Sun is shining. I like the clothes I'm wearing. I haven't argued with anybody recently. I could identify circumstances that would make me feel good. Brian immediately went to heaven. Praise the Lord. And I asked myself, I think about that, which one of us saw reality accurately? Which one of us had a real grip on the way in the, that, that our God works in this world? Who most clearly understood how things really were? If God is this good, then celebrating uh, communion with him is infused with surrender. just makes sense. 
It's also infused with something else. It's infused with sharing, sharing with others. This offering was a public testimony that was spread. And it was a blessing to all from, from the wealth. God had blessed them uh, in specific ways. And their joy in God was a call to rejoice and to share. This is a reminder in the Old Testament that God creates a community of worshipers. And it should be a reminder to you of the community of which you are a part. We're called to rejoice with another's joys. We do it by worshiping together. This meeting is not supposed to be a gathering of autonomous worshipers. Uh, we're not supposed to be like marbles thrown together in a, ba- in, in a bag. There's a lot of banging and clanging, but no real impact on one another. We're supposed to instead be a gathering of grapes. What happens when grapes bump against each other? Sweet juice comes out. Uh, we, we share with one another. Now, you can't share uh, with everyone in every way. It's impossible in a group this size. But you can share with someone, some people. This is what the time before and after the service is for. So what you're supposed to do between the time you get here and the time the service starts and after the service is, is over. Talk to somebody about the blessings that God has brought to your life. I wonder, if, is that what you're going to talk about at lunch this week? How, how kind God has been? Again, I'm not talking about the fact that we paper over the sorrows of life in this world. Some of you had a really bad week. Uh, You were sick. uh, You had financial troubles. You you were fighting with your spouse. um, Your kids are making foolish choices. You had a bad week. We don't come to church to pretend like everything is all right. We come to church to remind one another that in the midst of all this mess, God is still good. He still provides He's triumphant. What he has done is triumphant over all of those things. I I say to my girls, come home smarter, not stupider. Um, I will not, in light of the Atlantic article, be saying to them, come home successful, not failing her. Some of you want me to yell out the door, come home more grammatical. I know some of you want me to do that. (laughs) Next week, get in your car. And, and come to church and say, come home rejoicing, not sadder. This is the glad announcement we make. Peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you for the reminder that was built into this Old Testament system of worship that that we, our joy in you culminates, our peace with you culminates in joy, and we're grateful to you that it is triumphant joy. I know that there are men and women here this morning who need a reminder of that, if, if not most of us. We've been uh, busy. We've been, some of us, plagued with loneliness. We've been um, beaten down by financial circumstances, by family pressure, by despair. Father, we are grateful to you that through Jesus Christ we have peace with you and in that we can rejoice. The peace of God will (laughs) um, grow as we know you and it will remain when we leave this mortal coil, as the uh, poets would say, as we leave this, we'll leave behind financial woes and illness and family troubles. 
And we will have Jesus Christ, who is triumphant. Help us to remember that as we sing, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as, as we live. Again, I ask that you would reorient us to the great work of Jesus Christ and how significant it truly is. Do that for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.